Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight we begin focusing on Christian questions with their answers. This is a portion of the small catechism. Uh, we always talk about the six chief parts. That's actually the first section out of four sections of the catechism. This is the fourth and the final section that is found in Luther's small catechism. It seems to me that this portion of the catechism does not always get the attention that it probably deserves. In fact, reading these questions and answers is a great way for us Christians to prepare to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, to receive the Lord's Supper. In tonight's Passion Narrative, we heard Jesus institute that very supper. He takes bread. He blesses it. He gives uh, thanks. He then gives his disciples his body. He takes the wine. He blesses that as well. And he gives to his disciples his blood. This is his last will and testament. What he says concerning the supper remains always true. For as Hebrews 9 teaches, that these things became sealed upon his death. That is, what he said concerning the Lord's Supper remains true because he had died. That is the will of the one who gives the testament. The Lord's Supper unites us to our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper also brings to our mind and to our memory the things that happened on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus celebrated the sacrament with his disciples in the upper room and as he ate of the Passover feast that last time. The Lord's Supper also brings into our remembrance the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified for us, the events of Good Friday. The Lord's Supper also unites us to our brothers and sisters in Christ at the communion rail and even with those who have gone before us. The Lord's Supper, of course, as Jesus teaches, imparts to us the forgiveness of sins, and the Lord's Supper expresses our unity of faith in Christ, which that term, Holy Communion, suggests that. And the Lord's Supper serves as a way for Christians to silently proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, by their participation in the sacrament. In fact, Walther described that as the congregation preaching when they come to the communion rail because of this proclamation of the Lord's death. It's just simply by receiving the sacrament. These, of course, are very serious matters as we approach the Lord's altar and receive the body and blood of Christ. In fact, there's a note at the end of Christian questions with their answers which says these questions and answers are no child's play, but are drawn up with great earnestness of purpose by the venerable and devout Dr. Luther for both young and old. Let each one pay attention and consider it a serious matter. For St. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 6, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. That you can see on page 330, the page after our questions that we looked at tonight. Yet many, sadly, do want to turn the divine service and Holy Communion 
from things that are sacred into things that are not. In fact, they may even reduce them to playthings, for they are not, not all do take the word of God seriously. Think of it this way. If you were invited to dine with the king of England, would you show up in clothes with a few stains and wear your dirty outdoor gardening sneakers and greet him saying, hello there, how are you? Of course, you would not. You would wear clean clothes. You would ensure that you are not unkempt and you will speak in a far more formal way, a more respectable way, because you are, after all, in the presence of the king. How much more should we consider our conduct when we are in the presence of the almighty king? That Jesus would receive us into his midst is simply amazing, especially when we consider how these Christian questions begin. They don't begin with some small talk or certain niceties. Instead, they go straight into the heart of who we are according to our fallen nature. That first question, do you believe that you are a good person? Is that what it says? Do you believe that you are a really swell individual? Do you think that you're nice? No, it asks the question, do you believe that you are a sinner? And we promptly answer, Truthfully and honestly, yes, I believe it. I am a sinner. How do you know this? From the Ten Commandments, which I have not kept. Many people do not want to make a confession like this. In fact, many take offense at us Lutherans for beginning the service by confessing our sin. Because there are some who think that Christians should be empowered to somehow stop sinning, they don't think that we should express the ongoing reality of being a sinner. For them, it goes against the very core of what they think being a Christian is, that they can somehow stop themselves from sinning. But yet we keep on confessing that we are sinners. Does that mean we can't grow in sanctification? That's not the point. The point instead is the reality that none of us can purify ourselves of sin and stop ourselves from sinning. Others feel that beginning the service with confession is beginning on an unhappy note, a low note, that the service should start out more positively, that we should take on a happier demeanor, but the underlining issue is this, we do not like to admit our sin. It's very easy to try to pretend our sin away. In fact, as faithful Christians, we figure that we should somehow be better than we are. We figure that if we're really a strong Christian, or if we really have that faith that we know that we have, we shouldn't be tempted as much as we are, and we shouldn't be sinning out of weakness as much as we do. Because we feel that that should be the case, then we downplay the sins that we commit. Or sometimes we like to relish in the sins of others while minimizing the reality of our own sins. 
We're just like Adam and Eve, in fact. Instead of facing God after we have sinned, we want to hide from our sin or from him because of our sin or hide our sins from him or from our neighbor. But that's where the final questions we read, we read today come in. Do you hope to be saved? Yes, that is my hope. In whom then do you trust? In my dear Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of figuring that God will only give us what we deserve, which is his wrath and displeasure, temporal death and eternal damnation, we turn to our Lord with contrition, with sorrow for our many sins. We turn to him because we hope for salvation and we trust in our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we are called, when we begin our confession, beloved in the Lord. And that is why we would even want to confess our sins because of what follows, which is the absolution. We confess our sins so that we can be cleansed of our iniquity and our guilt canceled out. Jesus alone went to the cross to pay for our sins. And then what he did is he raised up ministers. He instituted the office of the ministry so that you can hear with your own ears that you, despite the sins that you had just confessed, are now absolved, that you are forgiven. That you, despite the fact that you, according to your fallen nature, are sinners, you are now called, in Christ, saints. This absolution, by the way, is also offensive to many Christians. They make the claim that only God can forgive sins. If you recall, that same complaint was given when Jesus, seeing the paralytic, told him to be of good cheer and that his sins are forgiven him. Then the people grumbled, saying, he blasphemes, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus asked the question, which is easier to say? Rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven you but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and said to him, Rise up and walk. And after healing the paralytic, the crowds are amazed because God had given to men the power to forgive sins. That is what the Gospels teach us. That God gave this power to men. Christ instituted the ministry so that you can be told of this forgiveness. And in fact, when you forgive your brother or sister in Christ, you are pronouncing to them the forgiveness of sins that Jesus earned for them. The forgiveness of sins is Christ's forgiveness, earned by the one who shed his innocent blood for all on the cross. And with this forgiveness, we trust in Christ that he will truly cover us with his righteousness 
and that he will truly declare us to be acceptable before God in heaven. We trust that these words are true because we trust in Christ who has never failed us. All of our readings tonight convey this trust that we have in Christ. They teach us not to hide from God with anxiety over our sin, but instead that we can draw near to him to find help in time of need. In Psalm 5, we prayed, acknowledging that God hates those who do evil, and yet we enter into God's house and we bow down toward his holy temple. We take refuge in him and sing for joy. We come to Christ in prayer, saying, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. When David was delivered from his enemies, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God in whom I take refuge, my Savior. David knew that he could trust in his Lord, even though David had committed some grievous sins. He did, after all, receive out of God's grace the authority to become king of Israel and the bearer of the Messianic line. St. Paul declared, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, that we draw near to him and confess our sins because of the confidence we have in Christ, that despite our sin, which is before our eyes as we pray in Psalm 51, God will not declare us to be lowlifes or good-for-nothing or rotten scoundrels. Instead, he declares us to be righteous, having given the robes of righteousness and been clothed in the garments of salvation. We have confidence in Christ because he has fulfilled all that the Father has sent him to do. We trust in him as the disciples did when they were told by Jesus to go into the city, and there you'll find somebody carrying a pitcher of water, and he'll tell you what to do so that you can prepare the Passover feast. They found it exactly as he said, and his words are remain true today, that you are forgiven, that Jesus, who died lives to give you his forgiveness, life, and salvation, that everlasting life belongs to you. And so our confidence is placed in him alone. Isaiah had prophesied that the Gentiles will put their trust in Christ. We heard Jesus quote that passage in our reading from Matthew. We trust in Jesus, for he is the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he is the one who made reconciliation for iniquity, reconciling us to our Father, and he keeps all of his promises. He loves us, he covers our many sins, and he presents us before our Father as righteous and holy, innocent, justified, These blessings are ours. They're not what-ifs. They're not a maybe or a perhaps. But they are truths that belong to you. 
You are God's own child, baptized into Christ. And therefore, you can turn to him at all times, confessing your sin and receiving his forgiveness, the absolution. And you can go to the Lord's altar and be confident that as you eat that bread, you are eating his body. And as you are drinking that wine, you are drinking his blood for complete forgiveness and remission of all of your sins. It is, after all, as Jesus said, it is, after all, exactly as Jesus had said. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. We now collect an offering, and uh, this offering goes to support the mission of Confessional Lutheran Education Foundation. <laughs> 